You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. I am really excited to let you know that we have a guest speaker in the house today. Um, Katia Adams is with us today. She is the lead pastor of a church called The Table in Boston, where she lives with her husband and their two kids. And I am really excited that she's here. She is a wonderful woman of God. And I have this feeling that God is wanting to do something really special amongst us today. So are we ready? (laughs) Why don't you just welcome Katia into our church family as she comes up to teach. Thank you so much for having me. It is wonderful to be with you. Uh, Why don't you say hi to someone next to you again, just so I can get situated and you're not all looking at me. (laughs) You guys are a sociable bunch. I like it. Thank you so much, Patrick, Gemma, the leadership team of having me here. I feel so privileged. I heard last night that this is... um, maybe the first time after COVID that you're having a guest speaker, or during COVID, we're still in it, let's be honest, um, that you're having a guest speaker. So thank you for having me. I feel incredibly at home. Isn't that a beautiful thing about being a believer? Wherever you go, you find family. You are my family, and it's wonderful to be amongst family this morning. Um, I'm just gonna uh, tell you a little bit about my story, uh, because I find that when I go to a new place, um, people spend the majority of the sermon trying to figure out my accent, and so to help you with that, I'll just introduce myself a little bit further so that you can put that at rest and be able to focus on what I'm saying. Hopefully, it'll be good stuff. So, um, I was born in Iran, I'm ethnically Armenian. I lived in Iran until I was five, then my family moved over to England. I grew up in England, had a very interesting uh, kind of dichotomy of life where I was uh, being sent to a pretty prim and proper British school. So we all spoke like this, the Queen's English. It's marvelous to see you, everybody. And at the same time, my parents were very much maintaining Middle Eastern culture in our house, and we would eat Armenian food, and we would speak only Armenian at home. And so I had this kind of upbringing, which was two worlds, uh, very much separate, but colliding in me and my sisters. And um, I lived in England, uh, studied in England. I studied to be a doctor, um, went to university in London, practiced as an emergency room specialist for a few years, Um, all the while feeling the call of God uh, into full-time ministry in the church. Now, you all understand, I'm sure with me, that when we're believers, we're all in full-time ministry because that's what it looks like, whether you're a a businessman or a banker or a teacher or a stay-at-home mom or a pastor. uh, The Bible actually says we're all in full-time ministry, but as I was studying and practicing medicine, I felt like God was shifting the area of full-time ministry for me from medicine into the church. Um, Then I met and married my wonderful husband. His name is Julian. I bless Julian because he is at home right now with our six-year-old and our five-year-old, Grace upon grace on him. And um, 
My husband is South African, and when we got married, we moved to Durban in southeast South Africa, and uh, we lived there for four and a half years, had our babies there, so these are all the accents that you're hearing. I'm just, I'm just serving you right now, so you can get this. And then while we were in South Africa, God spoke to us about moving to the States and planting church in the States, and so we moved initially to California for a bit of a breather, and then two years ago, landed in Boston. Uh, Boston an accent hasn't quite taken hold yet. I'm trusting Jesus that he will, be, that he will protect me from such an eventuality. And uh, see, that works in New York. I would never say that in Boston. And, um, and so we've made home there and actually we're just in the process, please pray for grace for us, in the process of buying a house in the outskirts of Boston so that we will really be able to settle and make it home for the long term. I am praying to Jesus that he does not move us ever again because we have moved around the world with uh, babies and toddlers and kids and it's not fun. So anyway, that should help you all. Uh, One of the things to say is when you're Armenian, uh, you have family in every part of the world. And sometimes my husband gets a little bit frightened because he feels like he's married into the mafia or something because no matter what city we go in, I know someone. And um, my cousin Patrick is here this morning, so I really do have... (laughs) I really do have family all over the world. It's great to see you, cuz. Okay. So that's enough of an introduction. Hopefully you really feel like you know me now and you won't be distracted by my crazy accent. As we were worshiping, I was praying, come Holy Spirit. And I was thinking to myself of what a dangerous prayer that is to pray. Sometimes we pray, come Holy Spirit, and because maybe we're not aware of the radical nature of that prayer or Um, Maybe we don't believe that anything will happen when we pray that prayer. We feel pretty relaxed about it. But when you say to God, come into this room, make yourself known, the thing about God is that he reserves the right to be God. (laughs) And that's always interesting to have God in our midst because when I read the Bible, I see that God often messes things up according to what we would like, it's gone very quiet in this room. And I'm aware that as the people of God, when we pray dangerous, glorious prayers, like come Holy Spirit, what we're saying is, God, our lives, the making of our lives, the plans of our lives, they're just not enough. And what we're inviting is, is you to do the above and beyond. And we're opening our hands and saying, you you take control of this situation. Lead me kindly, gently, please Jesus, I often pray that. But at the same time recognizing he's God and he knows better than I know. Are there any home renovation fans out there? Okay. I love home renovation shows, and I've figured out with young kids that there's basically two kinds of shows that I am safe to watch with them, because for a while we were watching a lot of kids' TV and it was killing me. So I was like, okay, I've got to figure out some kind of adult TV that I can introduce my children to that will allow me to stay sane, but they get the half-hour break in front of the TV screen that they wanted. And I realized that there's two kinds of shows out there that, generally speaking, (laughs) 
uh, work well. Baking shows and home renovation shows. And my kids have wholeheartedly adopted both as a fun way of watching TV. And my son in particular, he's six, he loves the kind of demo moment of home renovation shows. As gross as it is, he loves it. He's you know, yelling at the TV in excitement when he sees something truly disgusting that needs to be renovated. But one of the things I'm aware, you guys are like, are we gonna open the Bible? I promise we're gonna open the Bible. Rest easy, stick with me for a second. There is method in the madness. One of the things that I am often observing in renovation shows where a family who's living in kind of chaos invite a designer in, and they say to them at the beginning of the show, you know, we, we don't know what we're doing, this house is a mess, maybe they started doing some kind of DIY and now they've got holes in the ground and they have no idea and it's just horrible. And I'm sure you've watched shows like this, you know, where they're all emotional because they're overwhelmed and they're just saying, please come and help us, we need your help. And then the designer starts showing them plans and you can, there's always two kinds of people in these shows who receive the designer. There's the person who's like, I really don't know what I'm doing, I'm fully surrendered, please come in, just change everything, it's a mess, I know I need help. Then there's the kind of client who's like, who says, I don't know what I'm doing, please come in, it's a mess. And as soon as the designer starts speaking, they're like, no, no, don't touch that. And no, no, I like that. And no, no, I, and you can see, I mean, they're on TV, so they've got to be polite, but you can see on the designer's face so much frustration because they're like, why did you ask me to come if you think you know better? Then by all means, do what you're doing. Keep ripping your house apart. But why did you ask me to come? And now you're like, please come, make yourself at home. No, no, don't touch that. No, no, don't pick that. No, 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 go, don't go in there. No, no, you know what I'm talking about? It's like the homes you go into sometimes and they're like, please, welcome. Make yourself at home, please take your shoes off. No, no, welcome, make yourself at home, please don't sit there. Uh, please make yourself at home. No, no, don't touch that just yet. That's not, and you're kind of like, I'm hearing mixed messages and I don't know what to do. I think that's what we do to God in the church. Holy Spirit, you're so welcome in our lives. Don't touch that. Come and make yourself at home. I am your temple, but I like that room. Don't go in that room. I don't know what I'm doing. I need your design, but I don't approve of your design. Why don't we go back to my design? You're with me? And it's not that God loves us any less in those moments. It's not that he thinks, fine, I'm removing my grace, I'm leaving you to it. But there's a sense that I feel like God is confused in the church because we're constantly sending him mixed signals. Come in, not that far. Touch this, no, no, don't touch that. My husband Julian often says of how he loved when we were dating, uh, he had this what he describes as a gorgeous bachelor pad. He's not in the room, so I can tell you the honest truth, it was gross. And um, 
I would, you know, while we were dating, I'd visit him there. He's an amazing, amazing chef, so he would cook me the most delicious food. Um, we'd have wonderful evenings, and I was living about two hours' drive away from him, so I would drive home, and he would be like, okay, I'm not cleaning anything up. I'll just leave it. And, you know, he would go on with his blissful existence, and then once every few days, I would go and visit him, and it was wonderful because he'd be able to enjoy all the feels, but nothing in his house changed. And then we got married, and I moved in. And I was like, you know what, I, I, I really appreciate that you've had this couch for a long time, uh, but it's really not attractive. Can we, can we get something else? Ouch. Or, hey, I've noticed that when we have people over, you don't like to do the dishes for several days afterwards, and I really don't like seeing mold growing on things. Can we change that up? Ouch. And he realized, wait, she's moved in. It's wonderful. Would we prefer to be married than dating? Yes, but it's also inconvenient because your life shifts and changes and accommodates the other. If not, you're not in a healthy marriage. Some of you are like, wait, is that what marriage is like? Yes, <laughs> it is. You have to accommodate the other. And some of us in the church, we love dating God. We don't want him to move in because it's too inconvenient. The dating of, of him is so wonderful. And you get all the feels, but nothing in your life has to change. But when he moves in, he says, you see that thing that you've allowed to take hold in your life? Why don't we move that? Why don't we remove that? Ooh. Wait, I liked having that there. You know that thing you're doing with your finances where you're keeping your finances for yourself because you've adopted a worldly, oh, I, now it's getting quiet. You've adopted a worldly culture when it comes to your money and your finances. Why don't we exercise some radical generosity and see what happens? And it goes on and on and on and on. So this morning, with some holy trepidation, I ask Holy Spirit, come. And as I preach, I'm asking Holy Spirit to come and breathe on these words with a full awareness that his coming is both glorious and inconvenient. And honestly, for some of us, this is probably the only sermon that you need this morning. We're gonna get to the Bible in a second. But really, I feel the Father asking me and asking you, what is it that you want? When you say, come Holy Spirit, or Jesus, come and make yourself known, or I wanna know you, or I wanna experience you, what is it that you're asking? Are you saying come, but only to the point that you're following my design? Or are you saying actually come because I trust that you're the expert? Because the experience of these two things are wildly different. It's not that he'll withdraw his affection. It's not that he'll withdraw his grace. You're understanding me. You will be a Christian, die, and go to heaven. The point is, what will you experience of heaven on earth? Because his invitation is more than just doing normal life and attaching Jesus to it. Okay, that was introduction. Wonderful, you're still with me. We're gonna go to Matthew 5. A number of years ago, my husband Julian and I, we were walking in Scotland, um, in the city of Glasgow. If you've never been, you should go, it's wonderful. 
And uh, as we were walking around, we started hearing the sound of music filling the streets. And we were like, where is that coming from? There were drums and there were pipes, and it was glorious. It's the sort of music that you feel like is echoing in your cells. We were like, what is happening? And we turned the corner and we saw a group of Scottish drummers and pipers. And when I say that, I want you to imagine with me the stereotype of what you might think. Wild, long beards, long hair, kilts, drums, bagpipes, going for it. They were wild in every sense of the word, and it was glorious. And we stood there um, almost paralyzed by the music, just so transfixed on what was going on, and the sound was overwhelming, and it was beautiful, and I could feel the frequency of it in my body. And as we stood there, I felt Holy Spirit speaking to me about a sound of a kingdom. Because the thing is, these pipers and drummers in olden times where there was battles happening, they would go ahead of the army and there was a sense of hearing the sound of the Scottish kingdom filling the air even before you engaged in battle. And that wasn't actually just the Scots. In many nations, that was normal. In the people of Israel, that was normal. That the sound of a kingdom would actually precede the engagement of battle of that kingdom. And in that day, as I was listening and just overwhelmed by it, I felt God speaking to me about the sound of his kingdom and what kind of sound that is and how he wants us to experience that sound as his people and how he wants us to start reverberating with the frequency of that sound as people of his kingdom because you know our God isn't just a God, he is king of a kingdom and when we come into belonging in his family, we become representatives of that very kingdom and there's a sound that the kingdom makes that he's inviting you and I to make with him. And when we look at Matthew 5, we see a moment in scripture where Jesus, the king of the kingdom, and Matthew is a book all about Jesus as king. It charts right at the beginning the heritage, the royal lineage that he comes from. All throughout the book, there's a sense that Jesus is constantly saying, the kingdom is at hand. Reach out. You're going to be able to grab it and touch it. And at the end of the book of Matthew, you get to this uh, pivotal battle of the king bringing his kingdom. And of course, it ends with victory of the king calling his disciples to extend that kingdom wherever they go. This is a kingdom book. And in Matthew 5, we see Jesus releasing the sounds of his kingdom, and I'm going to read these sounds to you. He opened his mouth, verse 2, and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you 
and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Wow, if only the world of social media would take these words to heart. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right here, Jesus releases the sound of his kingdom and as the crowds were gathered listening to his words, listening like Julian and I did that day to the sound of a kingdom filling the air. There was this frequency released. And if we're honest, and if we can put our, ourselves in their shoes, we would recognize that the sound made no sense at all. This is not the words that they were expecting to hear. This is not anything that we would see logically paired together, persecution and blessing, uh, all of these things. These are words that start um, filling the sound waves and yet, as the people hear, they come into contact with a kingdom that makes no sense at all. They come into contact with a king who makes no sense at all. In fact, in many ways, a king who is offensive in the words that he's saying, and we'll look at that together, because this is an upside-down kingdom they're being introduced to. This is an upside-down king they're being introduced to. Jesus makes no sense. And we're gonna have to be honest about that if we can be people of the kingdom. The first point here that I wanna make is that the words that he said were upside down. Now, let's think about the cultural uh, reality, the context of Matthew 5. He's speaking to Jewish people who are at the bottom of the food chain at that point in time, but who are believing in promises that one day God is gonna restore the fortunes of Israel. And they have all these promises about what a Messiah will look like, and that they have filtered those words through a political lens and a political agenda. In many ways, we're living in similar times today, but I'll move on swiftly, and that's how they're seeing the expectation of the Messiah come to earth, and they hear about this Jesus figure, and they think, oh, wait, well, this is interesting. Oh, he seems to be shaking things up. Could this be him? And he gathers the crowds to teach, and he sits on the mountainside, which we're told here in Matthew, which was the sign of a teacher beginning to teach. They would sit down. That was an authority moment, and this has echoes of Moses bringing the law on the Mountainside, this is big. The atmosphere is electric. Hey, come and hear. He's awesome. He's here. Let's listen to what he says. This is the moment. Oh, the Romans are about to get it. Can't wait. I'm so excited. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. What? Blessed are the peacemakers. No, no, no. I, no, no we, we must be hearing him incorrectly. He didn't mean that. Surely not. The pure in heart, the merciful, those who mourn. When you're hungry, no, no, well, uh, Jesus, you don't get it. We're, we're trying to overcome our circumstances. Uh, you're talking something that makes no sense. It, it was upside down. We live in the world in the same way now where which political system is being built on these things? Can you imagine a presidential candidate standing up and saying, okay, here's the manifesto, people. If you vote for me, this is what you're voting for. Get excited. Poverty, mourning, meekness, 
hunger, mercy, okay, being pure, right, persecution, that's the main kind of stronghold, vote for me everyone and be persecuted. We laugh because it's ridiculous. And yet we read the words of scripture, we skim over these things like it's perfectly natural and normal. And the Jews would be saying, this is the guy I've always hoped to meet. We're not reading our Bibles correctly. They met him and he made no sense. Why do you think the Pharisees hated him? They met him and his words didn't adhere to their design plans. No, no, we we had a design here. We're asking you to come and help for sure, but the design is politically overthrowing those who hate us. He's an upside down king, an upside down kingdom. He was upside down then and he's upside down now or maybe we're the ones who are upside down and he's just turning us the right way round again. See, we are people of an upside down kingdom but I wonder if we make too much sense to the world around us. I wonder if people meet me and think, wait, can you say that again? Or they think that makes perfect sense. I wonder if people see how I love, how I forgive, how I use my finance, how I make decisions of my belongings, how I join community, how I, all the things, and think, thumbs up, that's how I would do it too. Because I believe there's something wrong if people who are not of the kingdom would do things the way that we do them. I think there's something wrong if people who are not of the kingdom would build churches, they would call them social clubs in exactly the same way that we build our churches. There's something wrong. Some of us believe that when we join the church and when we believe in Jesus, essentially our lives go on exactly the same that they would otherwise, we just feel a little bit happier or we're just okay because we've got the fire insurance from hell all sorted out. It's like me and my paperwork for insurance. If you said to me right now, some of you will be appalled by this, but if you said to me right now, where's your home insurance paperwork, I'm like, I hope it's in my filing cabinet. I haven't looked at it for a while, so I don't know what it even says right now, but we're in short. This is just for reference. I became a Christian just for future reference. For that moment when the fire takes down my house, I can say, here's my paperwork, I'm all good. But the rest of the time, I'm living without that paperwork in mind. But that's not what it means to be a people of the kingdom. This isn't just paperwork for reference one day in case I need it. This is like crossing fingers, hope that Jesus is real, but you know, just in case he is real, I've said the prayer, I'm good. That's not what the Bible describes as being a Christian. The Bible describes being swallowed up into the life of Jesus so that our designs get completely decimated and we live with his designs. Some of you are like, I'm not sure if that's what I signed up for. Well, I wanna tell you, that's what the Bible signs you up for. You needed to read the fine print. And just in case you're worried or scared or starting to think, this is terrifying. I wanna say to you, you are releasing your life in being swallowed up in Jesus 
to someone who is much more of an expert of how to live your life than you are. It is a joy and a privilege. It is an invitation into the most wonderful adventure you could ever live. All we have to do is allow him to drive. He's an upside down king of an upside down kingdom. And the Jews weren't ready for him and I wonder if we are either. If we're honest, I think some of us would really have disliked Jesus. And the reason I know that to be true is lots of us really dislike the Holy Spirit or at least are nervous of him and the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus. And sometimes as Christians, it's easier to pray for, to Jesus and part of the reason I think we do that is because Jesus is a historical figure and there's less inconvenience when we talk to Jesus. When we talk to Holy Spirit, we're aware that he might come and invade things and we're not sure if we'd appreciate that. I'm being really honest this morning. I hope you guys can for me, forgive me for that. He's a king of an upside down kingdom. I think of the bishop who said, everywhere St. Paul went, there was a riot. Everywhere I go, they serve me tea. And I think sometimes for us as Christians, if we're dealt with in a way that is uh, sweet and we're all getting along super and it's totally fine and there's no waves that we're making anywhere, I just wonder if we've fully understood the call of the gospel. Not that we're to be irritating for just being annoying or that we're to be offensive in our manner so that we can then say, I'm being persecuted. And it's just because we're being annoying rather than people of the gospel. That's not what I'm talking about. But I think sometimes we're so careful to be polite in the world around us and to do things as non-Christians would understand. I'm just not sure I see that in the pages of scripture when you look at the life of Jesus. And last time I checked, we were invited to follow in his footsteps. Jesus drew people to him not because he made sense to them, but because he actually put language to a desire in their hearts that they'd never been able to put language to. Why I belong and is there a purpose to my life? And it wasn't because he lived according to their standards, but it was because he filled the air with the sound of a kingdom and only that kingdom can make sense of the heart's cry. And as people of the kingdom, sometimes we're so careful to make sense to people, to be culturally appropriate in how we introduce them to Jesus. And listen, I'm, I'm being really careful here. Please don't hear something I'm not saying. I'm not saying be weird and then call it being Christian. What I'm saying is we have to draw people not primarily uh, to how they live their lives already, but to make sense of their heart's cry that is there. They just don't know how to voice it. And that requires a completely different design of living. I'm talking about people who being people who love so radically that non-Christians say, how are you loving like you're loving? I'm talking about being people who are so joy-filled, joy that isn't deep, 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 deep down in our hearts that no one can actually taste the fruit. The thing of the fruit of the spirit is it isn't fruit if you can't taste it. You know, you bump into Christians who are the most miserable people you've ever met. You wonder if they'd be better as non-Christians. But anyway, you meet them. <laughs> Forgive me, I'm being cheeky. Um, just put it down to the British in me. Anyway, you meet them and they're miserable and then they say to you, grumpily, I really do have the fruit of joy. Funny, I can't taste it. 
meant to be hidden within. It's meant to be a fruit that is expressed that other people can come into contact with it and go, oh my goodness, that tastes like joy. Where did you get that from? Some of us are growing GMO'd fruit that tastes of nothing. And we need to go to Italy where those vine ripened tomatoes taste so amazing that you eat that people will taste your peace and say, I thought I was peaceful. This is something different. I recognize what I've been expressing, living in, encountering all my life is something that is a watered down version, pale in comparison, a counterfeit. Where did you get this? It's like being people who have found the world's best farmer's market. And when people come to your house and they taste the goods at your table, they're like, what? oh my goodness, where did you get that? That's the point. But too many of us Christians are living with the world's version of peace and joy and love and patience and kindness and all the rest. And we wonder why no one's asking us anything. Because there's nothing in your life that makes other people hungry. For too long, the church is picking up pictures of bread and saying, come, all those who are hungry, and let me describe to you bread. You know what? How about we just open up a bakery and then see how the smell of fresh bread doesn't draw people in? We were never meant to explain these words. We were meant to express these words so that people didn't need to get a theological expose on the Bible in order to encounter Jesus. They were just meant to meet you and me. It's an upside down kingdom. The difficulty, of course, is that it's also an offensive kingdom. The religious of Jesus' day hated him. They were offended by him. Read Matthew 11, 13, and 15. All chapters where Jesus talks about or explains why people are offended by him. Matthew 11, John the Baptist is offended by him because John the Baptist is in prison and Jesus isn't gonna break him out of there. And Jesus says, blessed is he who is not offended by me. Jesus wants to heal our disappointment so that rather than disappointment leading to offense, it can lead to surrender and bear grief good fruit in our lives. Matthew 13, the disciples and the Pharisees are all there and Jesus starts teaching directly in contradiction to their religious practices, principles, and designs. And the disciples say to Jesus as if he didn't know what was happening, don't you know the Pharisees were offended by you? Go figure. Why? Because Jesus' way is an offense to the religious spirit, to the religious spirit that says our good works will be enough, to the religious spirit that says if I do enough, I will be morally superior to you over there and then I can live in my pride and arrogance that I pray more than you and I fast more than you and I'm just more moral than you, so good luck to you. Jesus' way is a complete offense to that because he says the currency of the kingdom is not your good works, it's grace. Some of you might have entered churches thinking that your good works are enough. I wanna say to you, your good works will never be enough to see God. Because they're just pitiful in comparison to the goodness of God. 
So Jesus offends the religious spirit because he says to the Pharisees, see all these rules that you're following, the ones that are in the Bible and also the ones that you've just made up to make yourself feel better than other people, all of them are worthless. Boom, an offense to those who live life according to their religious principles and think that that's the purpose that they were made for. But Jesus isn't just an offense to the religious spirit, he's an offense to the wisdom of this world. He was offensive to the wisdom of that age and still an offense to the wisdom of this age. Those who were operating with the wisdom of his age want to make him king by force. That's what the New Testament tells us. Those who had a plan, who were thinking according to the cultural needs of their day, they were saying, hey, this guy is the guy we need. Let's just force him. He's really annoying because he won't do what we're telling him. Let's just force him to be king, and then that will solve our problems. He offended the wisdom of his age because he refused to do what they thought was wise. In Matthew 15, we get to Jesus in Nazareth, and it says that they said to one another, isn't this the carpenter's son? They're doing the worldly math, and it doesn't add up. We grew up with this kid. Who does he think he is coming and telling us how it is now? And it says because of their lack of faith, he was not able to do many miracles. Why? Because they wanted miracles to happen through their worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom will never allow for the miraculous. Again, it's like people with our design saying, come Holy Spirit, but don't mess our design. You just won't experience him. Because he reserves the right to be God. And that means he gets to fix the design, not us. The kingdom isn't just upside down in a sweet way, it's offensive because it totally challenges the way we see the world to work. And Jesus didn't care. He just kept making the sound of his kingdom. And people were offended, and people resisted him. But some people heard the sound and were overwhelmed by it and then began to make the same frequency themselves. I think of Mary. You know the story, Mary, Martha, two sisters, they had a brother Lazarus, no big deal, he died and then rose again. That's a different story for a different time. Mary and Martha are in their house, they're hosting Jesus and his disciples, big deal, the rabbis come to town. Martha's working really hard to host him. Mary decides that she's gonna just tap out of that for a second and sit at the feet of Jesus. The thing is, when you read Acts, you realize that sitting at the feet of Jesus isn't about proximity physically, but is to basically volunteer yourself as a disciple. The thing that's unthinkable in that story is that Mary was a woman, and in Jewish culture, no woman was allowed to be a disciple of a rabbi. So what's happening in that story isn't about, hey, Martha saying, Jesus, get Mary to help me with the sandwiches, she's so selfish. It's Martha saying, Jesus, get Mary back in line. She is breaking all the boundaries. She is doing something that women are not allowed to do, send her back into the kitchen, and Jesus says, I absolutely will not. She has chosen the best thing, and it will not be taken away from her. What happened there? Because Mary started offending the wisdom of the age, what happened is she heard the sound of a kingdom. She couldn't help herself. She came into encounter with a Jesus who is beautiful and wonderful and full of truth.
truth and grace, which John 1 describes to us as the glory of God, truth and grace. And she began, as she came in contact with him, she began to reverberate with the sound that he was making, and everything in her life began to change. And rather than think, I need to adhere to the wisdom of this age, she thought, I am breaking out of the wisdom of this age because I've heard his sound, and it is superior to any sound this world might make, and I'm going to join that sound. I think of the woman with the alabaster jar who broke into the male-only section of the party and she took her alabaster jar and she, in those days, they're reclining at a table. It's not neat. She's having to climb over bodies to get to Jesus. This is inappropriate on any level. The church is like, oh my goodness, someone get a modesty cloth, please. That's awkward. And she comes in and she breaks this jar and she pours it on him and she starts weeping. Can you imagine someone doing that right now? We read these stories like they're normal. They were never normal. Sorry, I get excited because I've seen the face of Jesus and he is too good and too worthy and too beautiful and she breaks the jar and everyone who's there, either the religious or offended, if he knew, if he really was a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman is touching him, gross. But he doesn't say gross. He allows her to worship him. The religious are offended. Those who are wise with the wisdom of the world are offended. Do you know how much money that was? It's like someone coming in here with $10,000 and just burning it. And all those wise in the room go, Well, if you wanted to worship, give it to the poor. Give it to the church. You're insane. That's what she did. She took something that in wisdom could have been done. She didn't just pour it for that jar to be reusable. She shattered it, never to be used for any other purpose than worshiping him. He is an offense to the religious spirit and the wisdom of the world and he's inviting you and I to come into contact with him because he's not just an upside down king, he's not just an offensive king, but he is a transforming king. And when you meet him, you don't meet primarily a teacher who's describing you fresh bread, you meet a savior who is fresh bread. I love this quote, I haven't looked at any of my notes but let's see where we are. I love this quote. We're going to come into land in just two minutes. Love this quote from a great teacher, Oswald Chambers. If Jesus is a teacher only, then all he can do is tantalize us by erecting a standard that we cannot come anywhere near. Some of us are living Christianity like this, applying the principles of Christianity without the power of the Spirit and wondering why we're exhausted. It cannot be done. It cannot be done. That's why Jesus said to the disciples in Acts 1, do not do anything until you've received the power of the Spirit. If the disciples who'd walked with Jesus face to face for three years hadn't learned enough by then to apply the principles of Scripture in their own efforts, I want to guarantee to you that you and I cannot either. It cannot be done through applying taught principles. But at being born again from above, we know him first as Savior We know he did not come to teach us only, he came to make us what he teaches we should be. The Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, that we've just begun to read, 
is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is having his way with us. See, the Bible teaches us that the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the very spirit by which he, he was clothed to do miracles, that same spirit that came fire and wind in Acts 2 on the disciples to change them from men and women who were hiding in an upper room to spilling out on the streets and seeing God do remarkable things, that same spirit, the very same personality that he had then, that same spirit is promised to you and me. Why? Because the Christian walk cannot be done without him. We just have to say, I'll go with your design. I'll take my design that has meant that my subfloor is now showing and there's definitely a hole in my roof. And don't even ask about what I did to my bathroom. So I'll take your design. Come and do what you want to do. Come and rebuild this home. Because that's what he promises he will do. So that the fruit that is in your life will not be explained. It will be genuinely expressed so people can encounter. I want to finish with a, an ancient pickling recipe. You guys have been very kind and gracious to listen to me through this crazy sermon. <laughs> and let's finish as we started with another interesting story. You know, there is an ancient pickling recipe that teaches us what Jesus invites his disciples into when he says he will baptize them with the Spirit. And the ancient pickling recipe is from the time where the New Testament was written, so we know that it teaches us these words very effectively. For baptism in New Testament times, there were two words that you could use in the Greek. There was bapto and there was baptizo. Both of them have, in essence, uh, a sense of being dipped in something. But in the ancient pickling recipe, you're told to first bapto, dip, the cucumber in water, this is gonna go somewhere, believe me, trust me on this. You're first to, told to dip, bapto, the cucumber in water, and then you were told to immerse or dip, baptizo, the cucumber in vinegar. See, the thing is, after the dipping with the water, the cucumber still comes out a cucumber. After the baptizo in vinegar, the cucumber comes out a pickle. Because what happens with baptizo is it changes the nature of the thing. Now that ancient, the ancient pickling recipe teaches us a lot about when Jesus says, I will baptizo you with a spirit. What he isn't saying is you'll get a little sprinkling of the spirit and then you can just go on your merry way and you can tick that off your list of religious experiences that you can have. No, no, he is saying you will go in a cucumber, you will come out a pickle. That's what it means to be baptized in the spirit. And the reason is you cannot perform the function of a pickle without having that baptizo experience in the spirit. Are you following me? And so we invite Holy Spirit to come. We don't quite know what that pickling is gonna feel like. We can't control the parameters. 
It's gonna be, I guarantee it, because I read my Bible upside down, sometimes offensive, but always transforming. But I don't know about you, but I wanna be pickled by him so that the way I live my life isn't just describing Christianity, it is demonstrating Christianity. I don't want my following Jesus to be effectively that insurance paperwork that I've hidden somewhere in a filing cabinet and I really hope I'll be able to find if I ever need it. No, no, no. I want my following Jesus to be reverberating with the sound that he makes. Won't you stand with me for a moment? I wonder if I can invite the band to come up. Thank you, you prophetic people. You knew what I was gonna do. I wanna say to you, that those who encountered Jesus, yes, encountered someone who was completely other than all they would have expected, but he was exactly all their hearts wanted. They just didn't even know it. They didn't know what they needed. They didn't know what would bring them life. And those who were willing to surrender their preconceptions ended up encountering a God who is kind. I tell you, when the Trinity is Father, Son, and Spirit, the Spirit isn't the butler of heaven who we try to avoid, or an awkward cousin that you're inviting to your friends hoping that he's not gonna be really weird in that moment because you're slightly embarrassed about him but he is God in the same way that Jesus and the Father are. And if we are willing to just say, Holy Spirit, come without saying, but not there, don't touch that, don't step on that, don't put your feet up, how dare you move that thing, that couch remains there, thank you very much. If we're just willing to say, come and let's see what happens, then we might find ourselves pickled into all that we've always dreamt we could be, but just didn't know how to get there. And so if any of this is making sense to you, and I really hope some of it has, if not, I've just had a long conversation. <laughs> we'll all go home and have a lovely lunch. But I just wanna invite us, let's lift up our hands. The first thing I wanna do is what I've described today might be a little bit different from what you thought Christianity was. The Jesus I've described for some of you, you're like, no, no, I really genuinely thought being a Christian was about me being good. And now you're saying it's not about that at all, but it's about allowing Jesus' life to swallow mine. Allowing myself to lean on his death, allowing myself to lean on his resurrection. If that's you, and you've never responded to Jesus as Savior and Lord, I wanna encourage you, just where you're sitting, you can do this, band, go ahead and play. But I just wanna encourage you, wherever you're standing, if that's you, just feel free to right now just say, Jesus, I wanna know you, the real you. I want you to have my life. I invite you to come and fill my life however you want to. I wanna lean on your grace and your truth. I wanna say my life is not my own, but I give it willingly to you because I wanna echo with the sound that you're making. And I wanna encourage you, if you do that today, and maybe it's the first time that you're praying that I wanna encourage you to talk to someone who's to follow Jesus. What it means to say sorry for the things you've done wrong, but more than that, to be empowered to live your life differently. And they'll be able to help you with that. It's a wonderful adventure that you're beginning if you're praying that today. But I wanna, I wanna 
wanna invite you, and we're gonna um, maybe have the prayer ministry team up the front. I wanna invite you, if what I've described to you, you're like, I want that. I wanna encounter Jesus in this way. I want Holy Spirit to fall on me in this way. I don't wanna focus my whole life on my design or the ways I wanna do it. It's not working. It doesn't need me to overcome sin. It doesn't need me to express any fruit that is miraculous. I wanna be filled with the Spirit. I wanna know what that pickling feels like. Then I wanna invite you to come to the front. And this is gonna be maybe a little bit strange for some of you. I'm okay with that. I think Jesus is too. But I wanna say he is trustworthy. He is not mean. He is not unkind. He is not scary. He is actually incredibly gentle and kind and good. But I'm just gonna leave space for a second. And you know what, if no one comes up, that's okay. Me and Jesus have had a lot of fun up here. But I'm gonna leave you a few minutes. If you wanna be filled with the Holy Spirit afresh, if you wanna experience God, not just hear about Him, I wanna invite you, there's space. And we're just gonna wait a second. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. You might be someone who's experienced God before, but you're feeling a bit dry and a little bit tired. And you're just like, I wanna echo with all that you have. I wanna invite you, God, to come and do that. Come to the front. There's space. There's no shame in responding. We're just gonna give some time. Worship team, won't you just lead us in a song for a moment? Is that okay?
Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come and fill this room. I ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us up to baptizo with you. We invite you, God, to throw out our designs and to give us your plans and your purposes. We invite you to come and rebuild the mess that we've made in our own lives. We ask you to come and rebuild the brokenness. We ask you to come and fill the holes that we've made trying to perfect ourselves and falling short. We invite you, Spirit of the living God, come and fill us. I pray for each and every person in this room that we would know who God is, that we would see your face afresh, that we would feel you, that we would experience you, that our lives would be different because we are following you, that we would be a people who hear your sound and begin to echo it in the streets of this city so that people would taste love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and miraculous healing and prophetic words and they would come alive because they would say, where did you get that from? My heart has been crying for this of radiant life. In Jesus' name I pray. Prayer ministry team, please keep praying. I know the team here are gonna lead us. Thank you for being here, listening. I pray the blessing of God the Father, Son, and Spirit on each and every one of you. In Jesus' name.